Um, if you don't know me yet, my name's Harrison, and I am not the pastor here, if you're visiting, um, but I get the chance <laughs> I get the chance to preach on occasion, which is always a good treat for me, um, and a great honor that you keep letting me do it, so that's encouraging. Um, we are continuing today in the series we've been in for weeks, which is called The Search for a Better King. We're reading through the books of First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. Uh, these books tell the narrative of events um, that happened when David was about to become king of Israel, and then what happens while he is the king of Israel. Um, and I was talking to Samuel Jenkins, who was just playing piano, in the bathroom earlier, and we've been in this series since we just happened to be in the bathroom at the same time. <laughs> and um, we've been in this series in, in just 1 Samuel since the new year. We're not even in 2 Samuel yet, and David still is not king. Uh, so we're taking this very slowly, um, and spoiler alert, uh, he's still not going to be king today. So tune in next week. It's going to be a cliffhanger. You'll have to come back and see what happens. Um, today's text is 1 Samuel chapter 26, and rather than read the whole thing, uh, I'm going to read um, verses 1 through 12, and I'll give you some of the context around it. I think it's not, yes, it's up here too. 1 Samuel chapter 26, the Ziphites went to Saul, who's king right now, went to Saul at Gibeah, and they said, isn't David hiding on the hill of Hekelah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hekelah, facing Jeshimon. But David stayed in the desert. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts, and he learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out, and he went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped all around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, No, don't destroy him. Who could lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he'll die, or he'll go into battle and he'll perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get that spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew anything about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. So um, 
Brief backstory, Saul is currently the king of Israel. David is anointed to be his successor because Saul will lose the kingdom, and Saul is basically losing his mind in jealousy and is pursuing David, literally trying to kill him so that he can't take his place as king. Um, Then there's this instance here, which I just read about, and then after David and Abishai take the spear and the water jug, David and his, his comrade go to this big hill that's sort of looking down over their camp, and David calls out to the camp, looking down at the camp. He basically says, Saul, look how close I was. If I had wanted to kill you, if I was actually guilty of what you say I'm guilty of, of usurping the the throne, I could have done it. You were asleep, and I could have killed you. But I didn't do it. Here's the evidence of how close I was to you. Now, basically stop pursuing me, because I'm not a threat. I'm not going to kill you. And Saul, once again, says, oh, you're so much more righteous than I. I'm going to stop pursuing you, and he doesn't. Um, But then the speech ends. Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son David. You will do great things and surely triumph. And so David went on his way, and Saul returned home. So let's pray for understanding of God's word. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for speaking to us that way. Um, Thank you for allowing us to know you through Scripture. Bless our reading of it and our understanding of it. Help us to listen for your voice and to see your truth laid out before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So, I need to admit, before I start, uh, that this passage was giving me a bit of trouble when I was preparing Um, It seemed a bit like a random occurrence in a strange sort of distant narrative, and I didn't see how it would be relevant to me or or to anybody else. Um, But as I was doing a bit more studying and pondering over it, I did come to one important truth, uh, but it it didn't seem very marvelous or grandiose, uh, and I, I wanted to have something really theologically profound and come and blow everyone away and put you on this next plane of spiritual enlightenment. Uh, but maybe, hopefully that will happen. Um, but the, the big theological point that I was looking for, hoping to find, uh, I really didn't get to it. And instead, I kept finding this one simple little truth right in the middle of the story, which is the fact, uh, pretty simple, is that God is present and he's working among his people. And it is a good thing to be aware of that and to wait for his work. God is present. He is present and he is working and involved among his people. And it is a good thing to know about that and to wait for it to happen. In um, verse 12 of chapter 26 is this one little important line. Uh, It says, no one saw or knew anything about it, meaning David being in the camp. No one saw or knew anything about it, and nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping, because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. The commentaries that I was studying say that the the Hebrew word for sleep used here is the same one in Genesis chapter 3, when God puts Adam to sleep so that he can take his rib bone and make Eve out of it. And it's the same word used in Genesis 15, 
when God puts Abraham to sleep so that he can give him a vision of God coming to him and making his covenant with Abraham. And then here in 1 Samuel 26, it's used when God puts 3,000 soldiers to sleep all at one time. And apparently it's this, it's this particular kind of sleep that God does when he needs to work something out and he needs people to be asleep for it to happen. And in this particular instance, in David's case, a camp of 3,000 soldiers is all asleep at one time just so that David can slip in and out, which gives him, of course, the opportunity to try and vindicate himself to Saul once again. Uh, If they'd woken up, he would have been captured. But instead, he's able to go in, have the chance to kill Saul, to not do it, to remain innocent, and then to try and convince Saul once again, I was going to do this, I didn't do it, stop pursuing me. God is working on David's behalf to get David to the point in his plan where God wants him to be, which is to be king. This isn't the only time that this is apparent and plainly stated in 1 Samuel. Uh, If you go back to chapter 23, when Saul and his men are first pursuing David, in chapter 23, verse 14, it says, David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. And then over in chapter 25, there's this sort of crazy occurrence um, where God intervenes in this unusual way, uh, but in a really good way, because David and his men are, are camping next to this man's land. This guy's name is Nabal. He's very wealthy. He has a lot of animals and a lot of... Um, possessions and land, and David's men are are camping beside it. And the whole time they're camping there, they're sort of like keeping watch over his property and protecting and keeping it safe. So because they do that, David goes to send somebody to talk to Nabal, and he's like, hey, the whole time we've been here, we've been keeping an eye on your property, keeping an eye on your stuff. Could you give us some food and supplies while we're camping here? And Nabal basically scoffs at him and like spits on the ground and is like, I'm not giving you anything. And so David's messenger goes back and says, hey, Nabal says he's not going to help us out, even though we helped him. David gets in this crazy fit of rage, and he tells all his men, grab your swords, and they're going to go and kill Nabal, and not just him, but every man in his family because of this. I mean, it doesn't sound very much like David, but it's what he's going to do. But God uses Nabal's wife, Abigail, to come to him and basically talk him down and reasons with David in a really brilliant way to say, look, Saul is pursuing you, but you're innocent of that. But if you go and kill these people in anger, you're not innocent anymore. The very thing you're trying to say you haven't done, you're about to do. And David apparently sees her wisdom, and he says in verse 32 of chapter 25, David said to Abigail, that's Nabal's wife, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. And then later, um, Nabal actually dies, not from David's hand. He just, actually, God takes him out. And then down in verse 39, uh, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong. 
and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. So in the first instance, in chapter 23, God physically protects David by helping him get away from Saul. In the second instance, God uses Abigail's wisdom to keep David from becoming guilty of murder, which obviously would be bad for his case if he's trying to be a king. And then in the third instance here in chapter 26, God puts the camp of people, explicitly says God put the camp to sleep so that David would be all right. Now, I'm not a military expert, but I know that no military camp ever goes to sleep all at one time. You always have somebody awake keeping guard. That would just be foolish. But in this instance, that's what happened because God is working out his plan for David, which is to have him become king. So these little actions throughout the narrative demonstrate that God is is bringing David to the right point in his plan. David knows this because the vow had been made to him when Samuel, remember back when he anoints David, he pours the oil on his head and tells him that he's going to be king. David knows that vow has been made to him, but he's not king yet. He's still waiting. And while he's waiting, he's being relentlessly pursued by a madman and 3,000 elite soldiers who are trying to kill him. From all external appearances, God's plan is not working out. And here's David promised to be king, and he's fearing for his life night and day, just trying to survive, let alone get to the throne. It doesn't look like God's vow is going to come about, but David, in his speech, continually demonstrates his faith that the thing which God promised to him, he would bring about. He believes and has faith that God is actually involved in what's going on, despite the external appearances. That's easy for us to see. We have the luxury of flipping a couple pages over and saying, oh, David becomes king and it's great and he does all this amazing stuff. But picture with me a man who is camped in some shoddy, rugged camp in the mountains of Israel, surrounded by this motley crew of men who are following him, but they're also pretty dangerous, obviously running low on food at times because he has to ask somebody for food. And in this instance in chapter 26, all of that would be fixed if he would let Abishai skewer Saul to the ground with a spear. The hunt would be done, Saul would be dead, his problems would be gone, boom, now he can be king. But even in such circumstances, David does not take the initiative to do the plan his way, which seems the most obvious to him. He says instead, do not destroy him, for who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he himself will strike Saul. Either his time will come and he'll die or he'll go into battle and perish. And then later at the end of his speech to Saul, he says, as surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. So in 1 Samuel, there's this huge contrast that's made between the fact that David trusts the Lord and Saul does not. You see it uh, both in their words, but also in their obedience. Saul disobeys majorly three different times, the consequence being that he loses the kingship. And then there's another fourth time that's actually really awful, doesn't get talked a lot about in chapter 22, 
when he orders one of his followers to slaughter 85 priests of God in a fit of rage because he can't find David. So Saul is obviously disobedient. Saul obviously doesn't trust the Lord, and David obviously does, right? And David trusts the Lord. David's obedient. That is what I just said about the contrast that's made. But this sermon series is called The Search for a Better King. You see, as great as David will be later in the story as king of Israel, and as great a faith as he does exercise here in this instance, in chapter 26, that same obedience and faith will not always characterize David's life. His recognition that God is present and that God is working things out according to his will and David's submission to that That'll come and slip out of his mind from time to time. And there will be really serious consequences that happen when David forgets to be faithful and chooses not to wait for God's timing. But there is another king, one we've been talking about for weeks now. There's a better king who does not ever let his faith and dependence on God slip out of his mind. There is a better king of Israel, who does actually demonstrate faith and obedience completely perfectly, never failing one time. And of course, that king is Jesus. Jesus is the better king that this story will point us to. Jesus is the descendant of David who inherits the throne, whose faith and dependence on God never runs thin, and who will always demonstrate patience on the plan of his father. In a situation very similar to David's, Jesus is also surrounded by his pursuers in the Garden of Gethsemane. And just like David, one of Jesus' friends will step up with a weapon and say, I'll fight for you. I'll uphold your cause. And like David, telling the guy not to spear Saul, Jesus says, no, Don't fight anybody. Unlike David, however, Jesus doesn't get to walk away while his enemies are asleep on the ground. Instead, his friends run away. He gets arrested, still knowing he's completely innocent. And even in that time, he will still submit to his father, knowing that there's some plan at work, that God is still involved even when it doesn't look like it at all. He'll believe that plan so well that he will follow it all the way to his death on a cross. Even in the face of death, Jesus would not turn away and take matters into his own hand. And in that instance, when it seemed like the plan had failed, it was actually the perfect fulfillment of that plan. For in Jesus' death on the cross, of course, God was working out his great plan to atone for the sins of the world and to bring about redemption of the world, which has been his plan all along. His involvement in the situation led Jesus to his death, but it was in that death, in Jesus' submission, that the greatest plan of God was shown to be completely fulfilled. 
Last Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee that God is still working in the world and is still involved. Remember earlier I said David was holding on to the promise that God had made him when he was anointed, that he would be king. It was a vow that David could rely on, the promise made to him that he was able to trust in, even when everything looked like it was not going how it should be. In the same way, Jesus' resurrection is the eternal vow that Jesus will be king and that he is the king forever. Jesus is the best king whose faith never faded, who waited patiently for his father to work out his plan, and we get to be the benefit of that. And so about us, like I said, it's a pretty simple truth that gets overlooked a lot, um, that God exists, that God is present and involved as he was in David's time, as he was in Jesus' death and resurrection. And those things, the cross and the resurrection, are the greatest evidences of that. Each time we come and eat communion at the table, it's a reminder that the plan of redemption is still being worked out through God's chosen king. Every time a new person is baptized, it's a reminder of the promise that God is working out his redemption for the world and bringing people into that. But it is tough, at least for me, to, to remember that. Um, on Wednesday, I was sitting at my desk, literally with my Bible and my commentaries open, writing this sermon about how God is involved in taking care of things, and I had some money issue on my mind. I literally couldn't read a line of a book without my mind drifting off to that and worrying about it. And then I would think, no, no, it's going to be all right. And then I would read again, and then I just kept, kept dwelling on that. I mean, this happened for like 90 minutes. And it was so ironic that I'm writing this sermon that I'm going to tell all of you, hey, trust in God's plan, it's working out. And while I'm typing those things, I'm just like completely fixated on this issue that really isn't even an issue, but it seemed so hopeless to me on Wednesday night sitting at my desk. I mean, how, how great are the, the doubts and the issues that plague us. So, so easy it is for things in life to make us forget something so simple that God is real, that God's here, that God has been working in the world forever, and the greatest evidence of that is Jesus. But the only thing I can encourage you is that it is what Scripture says. It is true, and these things which I listed, the, the vacant cross, the vacant tomb, the meal we get to eat from, and the experience of all this, of being brought into God's plan, is the evidence that God is working. The resurrection of Jesus, the reality of his life and his reigning, is the evidence that God is still working in the world. Um, Obviously, from David's life, we see that God being involved doesn't mean that people are problem-free. And we know from common human experience, we experience issues. There are problems in life. Jesus himself, of course, had problems, suffered things in life with us. But the assurance of Scripture, the assurance of Jesus' kingship is that God is still involved, God still cares, and he is still working out his plan through his son.
His Son is the eternal guarantee of God's presence, and it is good to recognize that and to rely on it and to wait for him to keep working. Um, To close, I'll just read the words of our king himself. In uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about uh, not worrying and the way in which we should live our life, recognizing God's provision. Um, And I'll read from verse 25. I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the lilies of the field. See how they grow. They don't labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So ask yourself, and I'll ask myself at the same time, as as someone who confesses belief in Jesus, Are you seeking the kingdom of God daily? And do you recognize your place in it and rely on that? Do you seek the righteousness of God first? And do you stay close to the Savior who makes that righteousness available to you? And do you trust that if you do that, all other things will be added to you as well? So take comfort, people of Valley Hope Church, because God is working. He has been working. Jesus is the proof of that, and thankfully, we get to participate in that as well. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for such comfort. Thank you for being alive. Thank you that not just on Easter Sunday, but on every Sunday, we get to remember that you're alive, and you're the eternal guarantee and the promise of your Father that he is present and working that he's working out his plans, that he is involved. Teach us to be strong in troubles and in problems. Make our faith very strong and our reliance on you also strong. Remind us of your presence. Give us peace when we doubt and assurance when we question. And help us to also share that peace and assurance with others whom you draw to yourself and who you place in our lives. Make us participants in your work and faithful to your cause and to your plan. We give you thanks. Amen.